0: My name, my name is Sarah Harper. I direct the Institute of Aging and I'm delighted to be the visiting chair um, this week. Uh, as you know, these seminar series are joined to the Martin School and the PCAP Centre of the Institute of Aging, which is the Centre on Policy Challenges for Aging Populations, currently funded by the Martin School and Kenneth House is the Director of that uh, and we were delighted when we were invited to join with the Martin School to present this seminar Series on intergenerational justice. And if people turn their mobile phones off, that
1: would be great. Um, and this week, um, it's a great
0: pleasure for us to introduce Professor Wolfgang Lutz. Wolfgang has been associated with our institute for about five years now, and he is a very eminent uh, scholar from Vienna. He is um, currently, and I believe things are, uh, are changing, so he tells me, but he is currently, uh, he leads the world population programme uh, at IASA uh, in Vienna, but he has some wonderful new plans that I know he's going to show with us at some time about uh, some developments, uh, and he had a very large uh, European Research Council grant which enables him to come as a visitor uh, to the Institute of Ageing uh, for five years, and so we see an awful lot of him, and we're delighted that you've taken time to present this afternoon's seminar. Okay, thank you. Well,
1: thank you very much, Sarah. Good afternoon. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm ha- very happy to see such a big audience. Uh, let me say a little more about the uh, recent uh, new initiatives in the Vienna area that Sara has alluded to. Um, I've been for 25 years working at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, which is housed here in Luxembourg Castle. It's a little outside Vienna. It's something that Empress Maria Theresa already built uh, more than 200 years ago, and that's a wonderful place for international global think-tank, that is what YASA is. I'm also, since seven years now, a director of the Vienna Institute of Demography, which is part of the Austrian Academy of Sciences, and I'm just now in the process of merging the forces of YASA, the Austrian Academy, and the University of Economics in Vienna to form what we call the Wittgenstein Center for Demography and Global Human Capital. You may wonder about the name. It's based on the biggest Austrian science grant, the Wittgenstein Prize, which is given once every year. And last year, for the first time, it was given to a social scientist. And I was happy to receive it and invest the money in bringing the strength in the Vienna area together uh, for the establishment of a center that looks at sort of the interface between demography and the application of population method of demographic methods to issues of human capital formation in principle education and health and I sort of put the new logo which we finally uh, settled on Monday this week which is supposed to be sort of the the world in the head that is the idea oh. <laughs> behind it here. Nice, uh, so. We also uh, have close links uh, with uh, The Oxford Martin School, as Sarah has mentioned, I'm a frequent visitor and a professor research fellow there at the Oxford Institute of Aging. But we also work together with the Institute for International Migration here in our big effort to do a new set of science-based global population projections that YASA will collaborate with with Oxford on this. And we hope that in about one, one and a half years time, we will have uh, new projections for all countries in the world not just by age and sex, as the UN has it and others, but also by level of educational attainment, by health, and by labor force participation. And I will tell you a little more about this during the lecture. So here is a short outline of what I'm going to talk about. First, we talk about the demographic trends on the global scale, and I will say a few words about this number of 7 billion. You may have heard the newspaper's carried stories that we are supposedly reaching it in September, but there are some big question marks because uh, population trends are quite uncertain and even the data about the current situation is quite uncertain. Next uh, we will look at uh, some of the key components of development, particularly for developing countries, child mortality, health and fertility and look at the role that education, mother's education. Uh, place vis-à-vis uh, income. Economists tend to think usually that income is the most important determining force and we will show some results that more point uh, to the importance of education. Next we will move on to some illustrations of our demographic methods of measuring and modeling human capital formation which is sort of the building up of people by their level of education and the health status. And then for the second part I try to address specifically the issue of intergenerational equity because this is the main topic of this lecture series. I talk a little about this notion of demographic balance, Uh, balance being a rather general notion, but in in this respect it's uh, looking at the different proportions uh, of different groups within the population. If you go to a dictionary and look up the word balance, it gives you a lot of definition. But one definition that really struck me and that I really like as a demographer, it's called the harmony of proportions. That's exactly what it is all about, demography. Look at proportions of the population and trying to get the right harmony of proportion. That's what balance is all about. And then I also tried to discuss a bit this topic of demographic sustainability that is often used. What does it mean? It means sort of long-term implications of current demographic trends. And I gave two illustrations. The one is uh, on recent work we've done on what is actually a desirable level of fertility. Is a fertility rate of 1.5 as we have it in Europe on average, is it too low or is it just right? Or is the French fertility of 2.0 the right one? Well, what are the criteria? It's, it's, it's quite a tricky level. We seem to usually think that replacement level fertility is desirable but once you have a closer look it's not necessarily the case and the last topic where i address these long-term sustainability issues is the relationship between population education and climate change and in particular the adaptive capacity to climate change how will future societies be able to cope with climate change Okay, a lot of material. Let's start with the very big picture. This is the increase in the population of the world, the human numbers on this planet. And the only thing this picture wants to convey is that for centuries, not much has happened. Population was growing. Of course, we have only very few data points, and these are only rough estimations. But what is clear, that during the 19th century, world population started to take off. And this was primarily because of a decline in the death rates, and primarily in Europe. And then you see, during the 20th century, it really entered this very steep decline. And this is particularly after World War II, when the improvements in public health, the improvements in curative medicine, antibiotics, and so on, spread to the developing countries, and death rates really fell precipitously virtually overnight, while the birth rates stayed at a rather high level. And the combination of high birth rates and very low death rates. That means population growth. And now you see here several colors for the end, for the 21st century. Well, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, and the colors give the different deciles of the uncertainty distribution. Uh, Most of them, as you'll see, uh, peak and decline somewhat thereafter. So here we are zooming into population size in the 21st century. And this is a probabilistic projection. So uh, we cannot say with certainty what will be the path of population growth, but we know more than nothing. For some parameters, it's really very difficult to say how they will move in the future. Population is such an inert variable. It changes so slowly that we know indeed what are the probable ranges. So what you see here in red is the 95% uncertainty interval. And the red line, is the median, with half of the simulated cases below and half of the simulated cases above. And then you see the gray, this is the 80%, and the yellow is the inner 20%. This, by the way, is based on, we have done several updates that were always published in the pages of Nature, and this was the one that was published in 2008 under the title, uh, The Coming Acceleration of Global Population Aging. Now let's focus again at this 7 billion number. You see already, here we started from 2000. That's where the last empirical data, it's the round of censuses around 2000, that has been the basis. There is a new round of censuses in most countries in 2010, 2011, but the results are not yet known. So up to 2010, 11 these are already projections. Now you already see in these uh, probabilistic projections that there's a certain range. We can't say precisely when the 7 billion mark will be hit. And uh, the United Nations has published the estimate that it will be in September of this year that 7 billion will be reached. And you may have seen the National Geographic had put this on the cover and many other newspapers and magazines write stories about the 7 billion. Well um, we've done a specific analysis to look at the uncertainty distribution of reaching 7 billion. And why are we on average later than the UN? And this has mostly to do with China. In China, fertility has very rapidly declined. And most scholars assume that the fertility in China at the moment is somewhere around 1.4 to 1.5, the total fertility rate, which can be roughly interpreted as the mean number of children per woman. However, the official data given by the Family Planning Ministry still report a total fertility rate of 1.8. And the UN, as an intergovernmental agency, should use the government numbers. And since China is such a big country, uh, it makes quite a difference whether between 2000 and 2011 you assume 1.5, as we do, or 1.8, as the UN does. And therefore, the UN projections reach the 7 billion mark earlier than ours, and we also in addition have these uncertainties, you see there's a very tiny chance that we have already passed the 7 billion mark. Then in 2011 still there is less than 15 percent. The point of highest probability is somewhere over the course of 2012. But you can have different measures, you can have the median again where half of the simulated cases are earlier and the other half later, then we'll reach it pretty much by the turn of Uh, 2012 to 2013. So December 2012, January 2013. And if you take the arithmetic mean, then it is still further out because you have this long tail. If you have the arithmetic mean, then it's sometimes during the year 2013. So this is just a word to show you that indeed we don't perfectly know what is the world population size and there's already some modeling involved in even such a clear-cut messages the 7 billion mark of world population is being reached this year, or next year, or in two years' time. Well, but not the whole world is growing. You all know that there are parts of the world where we actually are already in the midst of a significant decline. And the most rapid decline is happening in Eastern Europe. You see here, with uh, near certainty, the population of Eastern Europe is already on a declining path and will, over the course of this century, nearly half in its size. And this is quite a dramatic change. I recently had the opportunity to visit Bulgaria. Bulgaria uh, had about 9 million people in 1990 when they had the change uh, towards a free market economy. Since then, Bulgaria's population has declined to about 7.4. For what reasons? Well, many people left the country, so out-migration was the most important reason. But there are also both other demographic factors, namely fertility, very, very low birth rates, and mortality, unfortunately still rather high mortality rates. So all demographic factors worked towards having a shrinking population in Bulgaria. And the projections by Eurostat say it will reach about 6 million in 2030 and uh, possibly go to half of its earlier size but towards the end of the century. But of course, the further we go into the future, uh, the more uncertain the projections go. The opposite is in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, here, continued very rapid population growth is a near certainty despite of AIDS, I should say, because many people have the wrong impression that AIDS Uh, causes such increases in mortality that the population actually stops to grow. This is far from being the case and actually the most recent data show that most likely AIDS mortality has already reached and passed its peak. It's already on a declining trend which is of of course very good news. But still because fertility is so high in many parts of Africa and the second factor is that the population is so young there's a huge momentum of population growth. More and more young people then enter a reproductive age that we will expect um, a tripling, if not quadrupling, of total population size in sub-Saharan Africa. And that is extremely rapid growth by any standard, more than we ever had in Europe historically. And that, of course, is reason for concern. And that is also behind this new interest in population growth and the negative consequences of population growth. You know that the Royal Society has just established a new committee, and other people are looking into this issue again. Now let's have a closer look at the European Union. It's not only the size that's uncertain, it's also the age distribution. So what you see here is a probabilistic population pyramid for the European Union in the year 2050. Uh, You probably all know a population pyramid. You just have the women to the right, and men to the left, sorted by their age. And again, you see here the the black line is the median, the blue is the most likely 20%, and then uh, the green is the 80%, and the orange is the 95% intervals. One thing that may be surprising is how different age groups have very different uncertainty ranges. So the most certain age group, in a way, we know most about the size of the 55 to 60 year olds in 2050. How can that be? Well, these people are already born. You see here we have the birth cohorts, so we know how big their cohort size is. Mm. And um, they are not yet in 2050 at the age when the mortality uncertainty comes in. This is one of the big uncertainties that we do not know how fast and how far future life expectancy will go, and there are two different schools of thinking. The one that we are already pretty close to a limit to the human lifespan, and there's another school of thinking that says, well, um, if there is a limit at all, it would be somewhere around 120 years, so far from where we are at the moment. And depending on who you believe, by the middle of the century there will either be many more elderly, surviving to these high ages of 90 and above, or many fewer so there's huge mortality uncertainty and then of course there's also migration uncertainty but these cohorts are already beyond the migration uncertainty it's more for those uh, who are born since 2000 that the migration uncertainty and then of course the fertility uncertainty plays in so this is, is quite illustrative that if you are sort of uh, concerned how many people will retire in 2050 you have pretty Certain pretty sharp numbers. If you're concerned about how many people are in old age retirement homes or nursing homes, there's a much bigger uncertainty. And of course, if you want to build schools, there's a huge uncertainty for how many kids you should be counting. And uh, this is uh, a measure of the old age dependency burden, or its inverse, uh, sometimes called the support ratio. Uh, And that is really the reason for concern of many politicians about population aging and uh, the european union again the ministers for finance and economics affairs are frequently discussing uh, this figure and similar figures where the main message is that there is very little uncertainty that we will have an increasing proportion of the elderly and a shrinking proportion of the working population so what does it mean we have here the number four at the moment we have uh, four people of working age per every person at retirement age 65 and over, and this number, you see very little uncertainty around, will most likely decline to somewhere around 2. So the support ratio will halve. And you see some sort of discontinuities here that have to do with the aging of the baby boom generation. When these big cohorts born around 1960 will reach uh, the retirement age, uh, then we have an acceleration of the decline here. Well, there's a big uh, geographic uh, differentiation in Europe. Uh, What we have here, this is from our European demographic data sheet that we produce in Vienna every two years. It shows you the percentage of the population above the age of 65 uh, in the year 2030. And here you do see that sort of the axis of the old, that is sometimes called Germany-Italy, will have the highest proportion, more than 27%. Uh, It will be followed by France, Spain, Portugal and Finland that have been sort of more (laughs) advanced. And this is really a question not only of the fertility level, but also of the mortality and the timing of the fertility decline. So Eastern Europe is still going to be relatively young in 2030, despite of its very low fertility now. But the fertility decline has been late. It has only been after 1990, after the big changes. Whereas in the West, the fertility decline has already been in the 1970s. So they are earlier, and in Finland it has actually been already in the 50s. That's why Finland is so advanced. And then you see, of course, Turkey and Albania are still rather young because of only very recent fertility declines and relatively high fertility. And the same is true for Ireland here. Uh, you may also be interested in, particularly in the context of global environmental change, people are interested in what may happen in the 22nd century. And here we've recently done some scenarios extending these probabilistic projections for the uh, 20th century into the 22nd century. And uh, you see fertility is really the decisive force. If you go down to fertility of 1.5 on the global level that would be reached only late in the 21st century, let's say 2080, the whole world would converge to what is now the fertility level in Europe. Together with even further increases in life expectancy up to 120 years, still you would have a massive decline in the world population uh, to somewhere around 4 billion. So for people concerned about the ecological footprint of humanity, this is really good news. Uh, The Malthusians usually thought to think that well, world population can only be limited to what Malthus called the positive check, increases in mortality, disasters that will kill people. Well, here we show that through voluntary declines in fertility, what Malthus would call the preventive check, combined with further increases in life expectancy, that's the best we can hope for, we can still have a significant decline in world population size. And this has been behind a a recent contribution I wrote to the Journal of the Royal Statistical Society with the somewhat visionary title towards a world of two to six billion well-educated and therefore healthy and wealthy people. That's sort of an optimistic outlook (laughs) (laughs) what we uh, could be going. It's different from the frequent disaster scenarios that you hear. And I could add that uh, people, healthy and wealthy people that would be well empowered to deal with the consequences of climate change. I believe climate change is unavoidable. But the question is, and that I will talk about at the end, how will people be able, able to cope with climate change? And the reason for this optimism you also see on this graph here. And this is now the stage of our discussion where we bring in human capital, not only looking at the human numbers and the age distribution, but also their educational distribution. You see four colors here. So this is the world's population by level of education. Red means no education, never been to school. And at the moment, uh, this is still a sizable. It's one fifth, but it used to be almost one third of the population in 1970. Then we have yellow, some primary education, Light blue completed junior education, so been to school until the age of 14, 15. And the dark blue completed first level tertiary education. So what I said is optimistic is because of the recent improvements in education in many developing countries, particularly, the young are better educated than the old. And uh, these better educated young will replace the worse educated old. And much of the increase that we see in total uh, working age population, that's what's plotted here above the age of 50, will be more educated people. There will still be uneducated people around that what Paul Collier calls the bottom billion will remain roughly at a billion and possibly decline a little, but the good news is that the rest will be better educated. Now, uh, yesterday I happened to go to the Blackwell there and find a very nice uh, New edition of Karl Marx, Das Kapital, an English version. And since I've never read it in English, I bought it and actually spent two hours last night in a pub reading through Capital. <laughs> and um, I thought that sort of the principles, thinking the principal ideas of Karl Marx are quite similar to my first statement here, that it is the people that produce economic growth. It's the people that are the basis of the creation of well-being. So the study of economic growth must start with the study of the people who produce it. By the way, it also occurred to me that this notion of the end of population growth really changes the main paradigm of Marx quite a bit. He believed in this, what he called the industrial reserve army. There would be always new workers. So if one worker doesn't want to work for this low salary, he can be dumped and there would always be new workers in line ready to take this poorly paid job. Well, if there is an end to population growth, we are running out of the industrial reserve army and that might very principally change Uh, the the status of workers in the future. And I think we haven't really thought about all these political economy implications of an ongoing uh, limit to population growth, end of population growth. Okay, now let's go on. Important is that people do not come as an amorphous mass. Not every member of a given population makes the same contribution to the economy. People differ by age, by sex, gender, by the educational attainment, by health status, labor force participation, and other dimensions. So not every person makes the same contribution. It seems so obvious that not everyone is the same. But economists and also demographers often forget that they treat in their models everybody as being the same, making the same contributions. So what we try to do here is sort of a first step in introducing what economists would call the quality dimension into this analysis. And for reasons of data availability, we first focus only on the educational attainment dimension of human capital, because human capital, of course, has many more components, primarily the education and the health component. For education, we can also distinguish between formal education, what you learn in in official schools, and informal, what you learn outside school. It's also important that it's not only the quantity of education that matters, it's the quality of course, as well as the content, what is actually being taught. And then in formal education, we must distinguish between the education flows. And that's what you mostly read about if you get the UNESCO education statistics. is it's all about enrollment rates, gross enrollment, net enrollment, repetition rates is the process of schooling. But this is only the process that produces the human capital. It's not the human capital itself. And this is very important to keep in mind. The human capital itself is the education stock. This is very inert, it changes very slowly to create momentum. And I will show because you usually we educate the young ones, and it takes many years until the better educated young then move up the age pyramid to replace uh, the less educated elderly. Still a word on the measurement of even formal education, uh, the quantity. Economists often use the mean years of schooling, uh, which, however, is usually indirectly mm-hmm. Uh, calculated from empirical data that gives you the distribution by highest educational attainment. That is what most often is asked in the surveys. And actually it makes sense to maintain the distribution because then you also can measure the inequality of the education system. It makes a difference whether everybody has sort of average education or you have a big group that has no education, another one that is very well educated, as for instance you have in India at the moment. And then finally we can also test the quality functional literacy and there are some uh, ways even for adults and not only for schools uh, to measure the the quality. Let's go right into the matter. Almost anything in society differs by level of education. If we are concerned with human well-being, of course, survival and mortality is a major factor. We have here many demographic and health surveys. that give us a huge database for most developing countries. And you see almost everywhere the red bars. This is child mortality for women without formal education. The orange ones is for mothers with primary education and the blue ones for secondary and higher, everywhere the more educated women have lower child mortality. And even in countries such as Kenya or Nigeria, where things have become worse recently, child mortality has increased. This is only really for the less educated women. For the better educated, there was almost no increase. So even the trend is more favorable for the more educated women. Another key variable when we talk about future population, of course, is the fertility rate. And here again, in every country of the world, but particularly in demographic transition countries, countries that still have rather high fertility, there are huge differences. Look at Ethiopia in 2005, for instance. Women without any formal education, six children on average. Women with secondary education, two children on average. The same is true for for Kenya and for Nigeria. And again, you have in some countries like Kenya, even in the reversal, this fertility has gone up, but not for the more educated women. Now, what matters more? Infant mortality as a measure, is it the poor? Is it the income that matters more that is the main danger? Or is it the lack of education? people tend to have sort of ideological predispositions. Some think it must be the income and the poverty and other think it is the education. Well, we can empirically measure this. Very few studies have done it in a recent paper. We've done it in a multivariate context, but this is just a simple two times two table that really illustrates the case. We just split the entire sample into the less educated half and the better educated half into the poorer half and the richer half. And what you see here, of course, as expected, the... uh, Low-educated and poor women, they are the worst. They have 50 of 1,000 infant mortality. And the high-educated rich are the best. They have only 18. But what is interesting, if you look at the off-diagonal, and here you see in almost every case that education gets you more than money. In that sense, the highly-educated poor are doing better than the low-educated rich. Uh In, In India, this is pretty clear. In Indonesia, you see it. You have it also at a higher level. Again, you see that the, if you compare these two off diagonal, it's that the higher education gets you more in reducing infant mortality than uh, being more wealthy. The same in Malawi, Africa, much higher level, you see at the level of 60 it is now. But again, you have the same pattern. And as I said, we did this in, in, a, in a multi-level, multivariate context, and it's a very robust and stable finding. Now let's next go to the the modeling of human capital over time. This is one of my favorite slides, and I think I've showed it to some of you who have heard me speak before. It is the educational structure of Singapore. Singapore is, of course, a small country, but it had probably the world's most rapid expansion of education. Uh, Korea is not far behind, but Singapore is a little ahead even. And you see in today's Singapore, young women are among the best educated in the world, more than half of all young women in Singapore are dark blue. They have tertiary education. Yet in the same society, their mother's generation is very poorly educated. You see, of all the women above age 60, the majority has never been in school. They have red, no education. How can this happen in one of the most prop- prosperous societies? Well, it's demographics. It's the lag that I talked before. These women, when they were of school age, in the 1950s, Singapore was still a very poor, miserable, developing country, and there was no developed school system. That's why they didn't attend school when they are young, and they didn't go to school later on. So you really can follow uh, this uh, improvement. And on this basis, we can also reconstruct. We reconstructed for all countries in the world to 1970, just moving these people down, and on the way doing so, adjusting for differential mortality. So this was Singapore in 1970. And here you see that indeed, the adult population was very poorly educated. And then when the better educated cohort over the subsequent years moved up here, that's when Singapore experienced a very rapid economic growth. Or public health, like malaria, was eradicated very quickly in the 1980s when these better educated groups moved into the prime adult ages. So there's all kinds of these changes happening on an age-specific improvement of education. Well, this is the multi-state model that helps to the school that we use actually in these projections, where we subdivide the population not only by age and sex, but here also for four educational groups, and we assume that women of different education have different fertility rates, and men and women have different mortality and migration rates. So it's a rather complex methodology uh, that is well established. There's no question about this. That can be used to project the population, capture the population dynamics by uh, variables, by dimensions other than just age and sex. Let's just go now historically to Korea. I mentioned Korea was almost as good as Singapore. This was Korea in 1970. He had already had some increasing education here, but still the adults (coughs) largely uneducated. 75, 80, 85, 90, 95, 2000. You see it really advances. In tertiary education, among the young, there's almost nobody with only primary, everybody has junior, secondary, and the uneducated only there in the higher age groups. Well, let's go on in time, 2010, and then jump 2030, oops, this was too fast, 2030. This Korea will be really a very (coughs) highly educated population, but what you also see is the shrinking of the young cohort, it's going to be a rapidly aging population because Fertility rates in Korea have been very low. They're about 1.1, 1.2. And so the big question that we don't really have much time to go in, but a few minutes I will spend on this question is whether the smaller size of the young people can be compensated by their better education in terms of the overall productivity of society. So we see that they are, they are shrinking. There will be, in conventional terms, a higher old age dependency. But the ones who will look after the order, the ones who have to produce uh, the well-being, they will be much better empowered, better educated to doing so. Just a you to China now. We have it sort of over time from 1970 to 2050. You see China made tremendous progress in uh, investing in universal secondary education. At the moment, it's only a minority of the elder. All the people have only primary education. And in the future, it will be only. But you see. China will have a peak in population. It will de- the workforce will decline. But again, it will be better educated. Quite different from India. India has invested more in tertiary education at a time where half of the population have been left behind without any formal education. A very different pathway from China. And that's why I don't think one should easily compare India and China as, as two where well, they are both demographic billionaires and they are both seeing impressive economic boom But structurally, it's very different. And uh, India, at the moment, is making major efforts to also increase the school enrollment of the marginalized, of the uneducated rural population. But this will take time. China has done this already 30, 40 years ago. And uh, I think uh, India will, in the future, suffer from this lack of investment in human capital in the past. And it's not sure that India, like if Indian policies go wrong and they do not expand the schooling, if they just keep the number of schools constant, then you may have a much worse scenario where the number of uneducated actually increases because fertility is still rather high in India. Now, this is a table that shows you that education also matters for population growth. It's probably the single most important intervention and the least controversial intervention to try to bring down fertility and therefore curb world population growth. What you see here is world population size according to different education scenarios. Uh, We assume identical education specific fertility rates. So the the fertility doesn't change. We only change the composition of the population. And you still see between a a high education scenario and a low education scenario is more than a billion people difference by 2050. So education really makes a difference also for overall population size because more educated women everywhere have lower fertility. Now, uh, what about the consequences for economic growth? We've published an article based on our new reconstructed data. Uh, It was published in in Science in 2008, where we, for the first time, could statistically confirm the long-held expectation that indeed investments in education are the key driver of economic development. But earlier studies couldn't show it because they didn't have the age detail in their data. And as I've shown you for Singapore or Korea, it was at the time when the better educated entered the young adult ages that we could show that economic growth takes off. If you take the mean years of schooling of the entire adult population, you still have these uneducated elderly as part of your indicator. And it has much less of a statistical signal. Now let's go to the. Not five, but this is the next to final point here. And this is the question that I mentioned. uh, What is population balance? What what is the optimal fertility, so to say? Uh, I've done some work uh, several years ago here and recently took it up again to see uh, how do different levels of fertility relate to various welfare indicators. And these welfare indicators are based on um, on the dependency ratios. And what you see here is that if you have, like, the the blue is a less educated population, uh, this violet one is a half educated, and the yellow is a well-educated population, that not only the level of welfare increases with education, as you would expect, but also that the optimal, the peak, shifts a little to the left. And we've recently uh, taken up uh, this more clearly to see, like, what, what is the optimal level of fertility if you want to minimize... The dependency burden. And we have this here empirically over time, from 2020 to in the long into the future. Uh, the criterion for optimality is that the educated way, education weighted dependency ratio is minimized. What is surprising, was surprising to me and is probably surprising to you as well, is that, that if the time horizon is only, let's say, 2030 or 2040, the optimal fertility would be zero, having no children at all. Why? Well, you have a very low young age dependency ratio if you have no children. And, and this, it really shows that all these criteria very much depend on the time horizon. Of course, this population with zero will cease to exist at some point in the future if there is no reproduction. But the dependency ratio will be clearly the lowest in the near term. Only then when these missing children then would enter the, uh, uh, the productive age, then it goes up and reaches a peak. And, And then it's somewhere around 2, but in many cases, below 2. This is one of the points that we make, that the optimum, uh, depending on the level of education, really can be quite somewhat below Here we see different education scenarios for Germany. In a low education case, the optimum is around 2 children. In a high education case, it declines to about 1.8. So the story. I don't have time here to go into all the mathematics. So behind it, the story clearly is if uh, the younger ones are fewer, you can invest more per pupil into their education. And they may be able to even overcompensate their smaller size. Uh, the pension entitlements play quite a role here. So if the old ones uh, get very generous pension, then you need higher fertility in order to pay for the pensions. Or if the uh, the pension is, let's say, 80% only, then a somewhat lower fertility is sufficient. So this goes directly into this question of intergenerational equity. How many children uh, do you need in order to pay for the pensions of the elderly, depending on the timing of retirement and the pension entitlement? Now time is running. And I I wanted to illustrate this for some Austrian case. So here you have the in dark for women and men, the (laughs) active population and sort of in light color, the inactive, not members of the labor force. And you already see that women retire much earlier, and there are many more non-working women than there are non-working men. Well, in 2051, Austria will be much older, there's no doubt. But if you keep the current labor force participation rates, uh, then there will be the number of this pink group will have increased significantly. Now, we calculate different scenarios. Uh, this is we increase uh, that of the female labor force participation to that of men, we increase both of them by 5 years, we increase both of them by 10 years, and if we compare these different scenarios, we look have here the absolute number of working people in Austria, just somewhat above 4 million. Now if we keep current enrollment rates constant, we will, due to the demographic aging, have a decline in the absolute number of workers. And this is what concerns so many economists and policymakers, But what we see here, if we only have a mild change in the labor force participation rates, like increase the pension age by five years for everybody, or adjust it of women upwards to the level of men today, then you will have almost no decline. And if you increase the pension age by 10 years, or uh, bring up the women to the men and increase both of them by five years, you actually will have an increase in the absolute number of the labor force. And this is not a utopian scenario. I mean, these labor force participation rates we already have in some European countries, Switzerland, Denmark, Norway, are not so far away from them. So in other words, only if Austrian labor force participation rates would come closer to those of Norway, we would actually, instead of a decline in the labor force, have an increase. All right, the last point I wanted to make is a very complex one. I'm only going to spend five minutes, because I think then I should finish, because we're going to have some discussion is the role of population in global climate change. And I understand the past lectures in this series have primarily focused on climate change. And that's why I sort of bring the human dimension in here. And I assume you've heard a lot about how human population impacts. You have the consumption side, which is associated with CO2 emissions. But humans, and this is something that's often forgotten humans are also the ones who produce the innovation and the technological advances that will help us to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. So, both sort of the danger lies with humans, but the hope also lies with humans. And they together result in a certain level of greenhouse gas emission that then accumulates in the atmosphere. And this is all the global circulation modeling that will result then in some forecasts with big uncertainties about uh, regional effects on temperature, humidity, extreme events and storms, sea level rise and so on. And this is where the analysis usually stops. And I think the biggest gap in our knowledge on the question how dangerous will climate change be on human well-being lies primarily here. How will the human population be affected by it or how will it be able to respond to it to adapt to new uh, conditions? And the key notion I think that demographers and social sciences should focus here is the notion of differential vulnerability. Not everyone is going to be affected in the same way. And so far geographers usually say this area will be more affected than that area. And that's clear because climate is a sort of a location-specific phenomenon. But in an affected area, the young may be more affected than the adults and the elderly again may be more affected than the middle-aged. The less educated will be more affected and the poorer will be more affected and the rich and the better educated. So it's all these differentials that we study in social sciences that really should be brought into this analysis of the vulnerability to climate change. And here we can also use these population projections by level of education. Here you see two education pyramids for Kenya, one with a very optimistic scenario that Kenya manages to continue its expansion of the school system. And here, a very pessimistic one, that there are no additional uh, kids taken into school. And I have no doubt that this Kenya of the year 2050 will be able to cope with the danger of increased malaria and all these other things that may follow from climate change, Whereas this population of Kenya will have serious problems and will be very vulnerable to climate change. So it's the differential adaptive capacity that matters. So this is the overall picture, and uh, we've just recently done a paper that uh, we we looked at sort of the question of whether education would be a a strategy uh, to invest in education to reduce the vulnerability to climate change instead of investing in infrastructure, dams and seawalls or whatever people are recommending to do with the adaptation funds. And we see here female education, and the log of the death, dying in disasters, and here you see pretty clearly the negative, but we have a multivariate setting, I'm not going to go into this, lots of numbers, but what you see here, I want to point out, that we have the human development index comes out very strongly in reducing vulnerability, and then we decompose it into its component, and the education component comes out by far the strongest, income is irrelevant, insignificant, life expectancy also doesn't matter. And if we look at another model, again, it is the proportion of the women with secondary higher education that matters. So in conclusion, in the global policy process, we are suffering from an inherent contradiction between two dominant strains. The one is people concerned about climate change, their the goal is a drastic reduction in global greenhouse gas emissions. And people are not so worried about the poverty Actually, if it helps to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, people should probably stay in poverty. I'm overstating the case, but this is sort of the the overriding goal is the reduction of greenhouse gases. In the Millennium Development Goal process, the goal is massive global poverty reduction. And of course, if people move out of poverty, they will um, use more energy they will emit more. So reduction of poverty will inevitably lead uh, to more greenhouse gas emissions. So that's an inherent contradiction. The hope here, of course, lies in rapid technological change that will bring economic growth and at the same time reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, But the problem here is the great inertia in the systems and the slow speed of technological diffusion. And this is an additional point in favor of education here that it, if we, investments in education can also significantly speed up the diffusion of these new green technologies. And there's many evidence showing that the more educated people pick up new technologies more quickly to help reduce greenhouse gases. OK, so in summary, the policy focus on more female education and basic health, what I, in one paper, called the Sola Scola et Sanitate, policy, only focus on schooling and basic health, is a multiple-win strategy, not just win-win. It reduces mortality and disability. It reduces unintended pregnancy and decides family size, enhance population growth. It helps to reduce poverty, as we've shown. It helps to reduce technological lock-ins and the environmental impact at a given level of income. We didn't have to discuss, time to discuss this here. It helps to reduce the vulnerability to environmental change and therefore I think this is a good way to try to resolve this major development climate change contradiction that we have at the moment. Well I stop here, thank you.